To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? I got a brand new podcast for you. So this week I have on Josh Kersey from Muley Fanatic. Muley Fanatic is a conservation organization that, that really helps protect mule deer. They've got a, a bunch of great projects that they, they've already done and great projects in the works. And, and, and they're just doing so much for the species of mule deer. Um, I get worried about mule deer. I, uh, I love to hunt them so much, but they are such a sensitive species. And, and there's multiple different factors that, that affect the herd. And, and I just want to make sure that I do my part to, to help bring awareness to other muley hunters and uh, put my money where my mouth is, supporting these organizations that are doing great projects. And, and the conservation model for mule deer it's just changing and evolving right before our eyes. You know, as we get more information from these studies and, and biologists and learn more about the species, we can better manage them. And so that's what that this conversation is all about today with Josh is, is just some of the projects they're working on, some of the studies, um, and, and some of the conservation that goes into help protecting mule deer. So it's a super important conversation. I enjoyed it. I think you guys will too. Our sponsor for today's show is Sportsman's Warehouse. Uh, Sportsman's Warehouse is such an asset for outdoorsmen. Um, it, it's just a store. They have multiple locations where you can really go in and touch and feel uh, the fabric and, and and see the fit of clothing and touch the design and compare and contrast. They have all the top brands, and they do a really good job of staffing knowledgeable outdoorsmen in, in each department. So they've got a gun department, bow department, clothing department, optics, uh, fishing department, anything you can think of. And, and you can just find everything you need for the hunt. Or if you forget something on the hunt, you can always find a location. Great for tags. Um, they just run a really good store. I know my good buddy Chase Galantine manages the Fairbanks store up there. And uh, he just works really hard to staff the right people in the right departments and, and really helps get people what they need and helps them with information of, of where they're headed. And, um, you know, they're they're not just salesmen in there. They're in there to, to help facilitate having fun in the outdoors. But they're just a great company. We really appreciate the support. So thanks to Sportsman's Warehouse. Uh, I also want to thank IOTA Outdoors. IOTA makes high-end scope rings and mounts. Um, I always think it's cool on their scope rings. They put a level, um, so so you shoot your rifle level every time. Uh, canting your rifle really affects the the accuracy of a rifle. As you cant to the right, you miss to the right, and so I just think that's such an important feature. Um, but they make rock solid uh, scope rings and mounts that you can trust. Uh, they also make rifle stocks. Uh, they've got a, a few different models to choose from, but. These rifle stocks, they, they just make for a better fit to your rifle, a better fit to your cheek. Um, great designs. I know they'll improve accuracy. So if you're in the market for either one of those two things, uh, mounts and rings or a new rifle stock, uh, make sure to check out IOTA. With that, over there at Eastman's, um, yeah, we're just going good here. Gosh, I got some great podcasts coming up for you guys for preseason. I mean, elk podcasts, and just did one the other day with Ike on on sage mule deer. So much great information in that one, like hunting sage brooks, that, that mid-level, broken open, high sage country, you know, still with pinion and 
and uh, Juniper and things, but uh, just a great podcast with him. And so we've got these coming up to you guys. Really excited about them. Um, got some great things going on in the magazine right now. I just turned in two articles, um, getting ready to leave for Hawaii here in a couple days. So trying to get all my work done. These podcasts loaded up for you guys. So we have podcasts while I'm gone and then um, also getting my articles turned in. And so I had a, a new article in the Eastman's Hunting Journal all about making a hunt plan. And then I had one uh, in the Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal all about chasing bugles. Uh, both really fun projects. And I, I try to always write next level. And, you know, I, I love the different platforms. I mean, as you guys know, I love this podcast. I, I love, you know, being able to talk to other like-minded hunters. I love being able to do the solo ones and get information out. And, and uh, writing's just another media form. And I know I told you guys this before, but you really get to think about your word choice and what you're trying to say in the direction of the article and have everything tie together. I absolutely uh, love writing. In fact, I really want to take on a project of writing a book one of these winters and uh, kind of compiling all this information. But I've got two articles that are coming out in the next couple magazines. I'm really excited about those. Um, yeah, I also have one I wrote for the Eastman's Hunting Journal that's going to come out this month. It's a, that's a good article as well. But uh, if you guys aren't a subscriber, make sure to check out the magazine. Um, gosh, we just got great articles. Um, our staff writers... Uh, like I say, we really work hard at writing um, next level public land tactics that are really going to help you in the field and not the the, the standard uh, status quo um, information about hunting. So just some really good information in there. The subscriber stories are great. Um, you know, they, they we're now doing Todd, my editor, is doing a sidebar on all these stories with quality information that may help you on your hunt. Uh, it, it's just a, a really well put together magazine. I always talk about the MRS. It's really helped me learn these different states and different units and be able to, to travel and, and hunt these different places and let me know the different opportunities that are out there. So um, if you're not a subscriber, you can, uh, I think we still have the promo code going on for the podcast, um, which is you text elevated 319 to 22828. It'll get you a subscription to both magazines and uh, we'll get you a, a free gift. I think we still have some MRS books with all the information compiled from 2018. Uh, but there'll definitely be a gift in there, um, whether it's that or some knives or um, whatever the case. But uh, yeah, uh, make sure to subscribe to the magazine. Some great content in there. And um, with that, yeah, we're just trying to figure out what we're going to film this year for me and, and uh, everybody else. Um, yeah, I should hear back here in a day or two. And then uh, I'm just getting packed up. I'm going to head to Hawaii, hunt with some really good friends over there, hunt some Axis. Uh, I got a mouflon tag. So going to go try to chase a big mouflon ram around. I hunted mouflon for two, three days the last trip out. And I uh, just got hooked on them. They're this small sheep that's just really wiry and switched on. Great eyesight. Uh, so we're going to go chase them for an extended amount of time with my buddies and just go have some fun in the sun. So uh, I can't wait. Bo's shooting really good. Uh, I got all my gear packed up. So get my work done and, and uh, I'm out of here on a plane bow hunting. So I'm um, pretty fortunate. Uh, but fall's just around the corner. Can't wait for this season. This will be a great warm-up for it. Right after that, go right into antelope and deer season, elk season. It's going to be so much fun. I know you guys got some hunts that you're looking forward to. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's a fun time of year. Just all the, the hunt planning and, and uh, studying and researching. But I'm rambling on. Let's get into this podcast. This is a great podcast. Josh Kersey, uh, Muley Fanatic, um, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. 
Okay, I'm live here. I've got Josh from Muley Fanatic Foundation. Um, yeah, thanks again for being on, Josh. I, we had a good conversation the other day, and I'm just uh, really excited about all the the outside the box ideas you guys have for um, helping mule deer out. Well, thanks, Brian. It, uh, it it's actually kind of I guess you know the uh, the mother of invention is a necessity, and that's that's kind of where we're at and where many of the ideas have come from is how do we continue to put forward, put forth progress, I guess, with uh, new and innovative ideas that will bring engaged stakeholders to want to build some of that momentum so we can get some things done. Man, I mean, we all just love mule deer so much. They're so iconic to the West and they're so fun to hunt as they live in so many different varied habitats and, and elevations. And so, but it seems like the mule deer is a real sensitive species. Like we're not in the heyday of mule deer. In fact, they've been going downhill, um, you know, at, at least uh, by some statistics. So why are the mule deer so sensitive? You know, I, th- I think like anything, it's uh, it would be easy to hope for just that one silver bullet that you could point to that would uh, solve the problem. And unfortunately, I think that's why mule deer are so sensitive is that they're they're sensitive to so many different uh, impacts that have, as you mentioned, uh, have significantly caused a decline across their population, not just in Wyoming, but across the West. And depending on who you talk to, you know, I've heard as high as 48% in the last two decades, 43% tends to be thrown around quite a bit. But I, I just think that there's so many variables. And I think that's where a group like ours has tried to, you know, if anything, make our Dave Letterman top 10 list of let's identify what these are and see how we can try to attack each one to remedy what some of those declining factors are. I mean, uh, encroachment in habitat development, uh, predation, disease. I mean, the the list is many. And I, I think that's that's really what our mainstay focus has been is, Let's look at each one of those and then try to see what solutions can be done. Of course, migration is a real sexy topic right now. I think science and technology is advanced to allow our scientists and our game managers to know how important that movement and continued connectivity of our big game ungulates are for sustainable herd populations. And so right now it does seem like that's a topic that everybody is aware of or everybody would like to continue to have. And so with that, you know, I think from those type of conversations and seeing that, uh, you know, there's a need for where do we connect the dots on try to stop those limits or those declines is that that's kind of how our outside of the box approach has been is it's been fueled by identification of what are some of the measures that are impacting our deer herds negatively. Gotcha. Um, because they're, you know, they they do thrive in some habitats and in some places. The herds are thriving and doing very well in healthy populations, and then others take a hit. Like you say, um, it, I, I guess we can't just. Uh, it's not just one thing that's affecting the population. Like you say, it's so many different factors, and so it's trying to figure out which factors affect them the most or even identifying which factors are are affecting that specific herd. Right. And and I think, you know, some of those are a little more challenging or pre- present different challenges than others. But I, you know, you start looking at disease and you go down a different uh, trail and what you can do to try to remedy that. Uh, you look at predation and, and that takes you down a different trail. 
you look at drought and some of the resource habitat selection or seasonal diet and even seasonal movement of the critters based on those needs of following the green wave of the landscape in the spring to their return, migrate back to their winter range. Uh, I think each one of those present a different opportunity uh, in just being able to see where you can go and try to prevent further loss, but also try to, you know, hopefully be part of the solution to to not just be sustainable, but to try to get those critters to be able to thrive again. And you're right, there are some areas that those deer, they do really well. Uh, unfortunately, those deer are not there year round. They have to move. And so for us, the migration component of this has been very important because we, we know just in Wyoming specifically through research and data and our efforts in trying to get a new license plate pass that would support efforts that could work to maintain connectivity, but also reduce wildlife and motorist collisions on our highways and byways that if those critters can continue to move, at least you can remove that one negative component that is impacting thousands of deer a year and putting human life at risk. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a, a huge project that you guys have taken on and it's, you guys are based out of Wyoming. Is that correct? We are. We're in uh, Southwest Wyoming and Green River is the name of the community where the Muley Fanatic Foundation headquarters is. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and then um, talk a little bit about this project that you just mentioned with the license plates and uh, helping the, the the deer be able to migrate. So this is uh, underpasses and overpasses, right? It is. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a large component of it. So the the uh, Wyoming Game and Fish Department uh, hosted a mule deer summit, if you will, in April of 2017 that uh, was done in conjunction with the Wyoming Department of Transportation. And it was it was a collaborative effort. A lot of NGOs were involved. But uh, the, the gist of the, the summit was to be able to put all these people in the same room and to be able to talk about the problem of the deer loss in numbers that we continue to see and have continued to see rise year after year in Wyoming. And, and you know, that's just that's a consequence or collateral damage of growth. And, and you're going to have more traffic. You're going to have more collisions. And, uh, you know, deer have been moving and migrating for thousands of years, and those corridors have become a, a staple to their their way of life. And, and when you start impeding on that, then those are the, the results that you end up seeing, and they become more prevalent. And when things become more prevalent, you get more attention to it. And, and so that was a way to shed light or bring more attention to this particular scenario and we left uh, with the idea of boy there's got to be a way to you know there was great ideas mentioned but there was a price tag on all of them and you know these type of mitigating efforts are are often very costly and no state agency is in a position to just be able to start allocating new revenue in, in our current economic situation that would allow for these type of remedies to be able to come to fruition and so our, our thinking was, you know, there are many other states around the United States that offer multiple license plate opportunities for their traveling, motoring public. And, you know, Wyoming is a little unique in that we've never gone down that road. There's been many efforts that have tried to, to make that a possibility for whatever the cause may be. But in our minds, this one seemed to hit twofold. It seemed to hit, obviously, for our love of deer, but... When you're talking about a license plate on a vehicle, I mean, it really rings home to everybody, not just the consumptive user of our resource, but those that just appreciate wild things in wild places. And 
we thought, boy, what a better way than those that love those things, whether they're hunters or not, to be able to offer the option for them to maybe pay a little extra money when they go to register their license plate for their motor vehicle, that there would be a, a vanity plate or a collector's plate, if you will, that those funds could be allocated to a separate account. And, you know, in small numbers, would it make much difference? No. But if you could take 5% of the state population that, you know, would considerably be conservative, in my opinion, of those that appreciate wildlife and know that, you know, a waterfall starts with one drop, but if they could get the idea and could wrap their head around the idea that if multiple folks wanted to get on board with this, that it could be a big pot pretty soon and could start making an impact and could make a big difference. And so, you know, that that's really kind of the, the think tank of it, of where it started. Um, and, and from there, it was all uphill. It, it was a mountain to climb. We, uh, you know, the first step was we had to seek out somebody in the, within the legislative body that sat on the Joint Transportation Committee that would be interested in not only hearing our pitch, but then would, would be willing to introduce the bill, get it through committee, build a little momentum behind it, and then actually bring it to the session that is held in, in Cheyenne every year. And, and luck have it, uh, you know, that first year uh, was a budget session. And you know, that's fast and furious. It's half the amount of time of a general session. They alternate year after year. And so we we did find that uh, individual, Representative Stan Blake from House District 60. He, he thought the idea had uh, some good merit to it. We talked about uh, the significance of the problem, but also what it could possibly be used for. That was one thing that for us was imperative, was that if this account could generate some significant dollars, we needed it to be spelled out on how those dollars could be used. And fortunately, the legislative body was uh, was willing to, to not only, I guess, embrace the idea, but support the idea and eventually pass it. And Governor Meade signed that, that bill in the spring of 2018. And I guess the long and short of it is, is those plates became available on January 2nd of 2019. So... The five uh, opportunities for that revenue to be allocated, and it is worth noting that that revenue is held in Cheyenne with the state treasurer's office. And then Game and Fish and YDOT come together collaboratively and allocate those funds in one of five ways. Underpasses, overpasses, existing fencing modified to wildlife-friendly fencing, new wildlife-friendly fencing, or then signage that alerts motorists when deer are crossing the road, et cetera. So we felt really good about the bill. It was very clean. It was very concise. It was simple for a reason because it is, it is in a nutshell, very simple in how they can use these dollars to an expenditure, that type of revenue towards these specific projects. But uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not a, a cure all by any means. But it's a step in the right direction, and I think it. Uh, I think it'll take. I think it'll continue to grow. Uh, when a new license plate like that is passed, it is in the state statute that 1,000 of those plates have to be sold within five years for it to be retained permanently, and we'll hit that mark this year. So. Wow, that's great news! Yeah, congratulations! What a process to get everything approved. Um, to help mule deer, uh, it, it's not a, it's not about just wanting to help. Uh, going through all the the steps and the entire process had to had to be overwhelming at times and and tough to get approved. 
Well, we we didn't, you know, it's funny, Brian, because we didn't, you know, the idea just seemed like it made sense to us. And, you know, birds of a feather flock together. So we were all here at the headquarters like, well, yeah, this is a no-brainer. We we should be able to get this done. And uh, the unfortunate part is we weren't. We weren't educated or knowledgeable to the inside of the type of efforts that have been put forth in the past for license plate bills. And what we learned uh, is that the legislative body was very calloused and it was almost it was almost a joke on how fast they could kill a license plate bill is what very, very many of them had told us that, you know, they had seen 47 license plate bills in the previous 10 years for various causes. And Wyoming just had this this, I guess, mantra of, you know, we don't want to be like everyone else. We want to, we just have the one place with the buck and horse on it. They did have one other plate that passed a few years ago for the University of Wyoming and its alumni. And, and that was, you know, clearly there was a lot of support for that because we just have the one institution of education like that in the state. But we had no idea, really. I mean, we were very naive in thinking that, you know, this, this just, this is a good idea. This should, this should work. It, it uh, uh, it was very eye-opening, to be to be quite frank, and, and it really didn't have any momentum even right out of the gate. And you know, at that point, it was wow, uh, especially with the the type of feedback that we had got from some of the legislative representatives and senators was that this doesn't have a chance. And so at that point, it's either you know throw up your hands and say, well, it was a good idea, but it isn't going to happen, or you try to find a different way to go about it. And for us. That different way of going about it, which really put the uh, the effort of momentum on this bill, was to be able to bring other stakeholders to the table that would support this idea that we knew had a powerful influence or voice with their constituents in the elected body. And that uh, and those two entities that we sought out specifically were the Wyoming Stock Growers Association and the Petroleum Association of Wyoming. And when those two entities came on board. We invested $5,500 on a statewide radio campaign to get this word out so that those representatives and senators would hear the message that there was there was a pretty diverse group of stakeholders supporting this, of which, you know, the conservation world is, you know, while there's a lot of activity in Wyoming and there are a lot of good groups, you know, it, it, is, a, it is an energy-dependent state that uh, derives a lot of its royalty revenue from that industry. Uh, the Stock Growers Association, you know, is clearly very historic and very tied to the decision makers that uh, the state operates with. And when we got that, that's when the, the tide started to turn. And I, I think that, uh, you know, I single handedly think that that was the, the shift of momentum. I think that garnered the attention that it needed. And I think it's also representative of the cause is this wasn't about just conservation. This was also about, you know, how many folks within both of those industries are also on the highways and byways around the cowboy state, all of them. And I, I think the recognition that this is a problem, this probably isn't the, this, the cure all or the, it's not going to be the solution to solve the problem, but it is an effort that is going to make an impact and to make an impact positively. And uh, I, yeah, I, I can't say enough about how many other folks were involved in this effort. Uh, there's no credit just to us on this. There was many, many engaged. I mean, we we had many of our members that we were constantly sending out emails and alerts and action items saying, please let your 
let your representatives know this they work for you this is your voice let them know you support this idea and, um yeah it, uh, yeah <laughs> it passed man <laughs> oh man yeah what a process um no that's super and and like you say it supports mule deer and all this information and the new studies on on migrational patterns which is so compelling like uh, uh there's so much evidence now with all the radio collar studies i know i've looked into some of those wyoming studies but a lot of these deer are are moving and crossing uh not just one major highway but multiple major highways and so that overpass underpass just gives those animals a place to cross where they don't have to cross you know through the traffic which also saves human lives and in wrecks and vehicles and things of that nature and it also uh, it helps antelope and elk and the other game species too I would imagine like the 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 game friendly fences a lot of that is for antelope as well isn't it oh it is yeah you're right about that it, it, this is not just deer specific uh, of course uh, and that was you know the pitch that we also had with the Wyoming stock growers Association is that this benefits all critters uh, this isn't just something that's going to benefit uh, wildlife but domestic stock as well but you're right the antelope deer elk moose uh, bighorn sheep in the Dubois country I mean we lose a, a ton of them uh, on the highway uh, really the benefit is for wildlife in general yeah and you said um, wildlife friendly fencing was part of that as well what do they do when they do wildlife friendly fencing is that like a smooth wire on the bottom and the top Yes, and uh, there's there's a measurement that they use that allow for that access to be underneath that bottom wire. And so there are many fences around the Cowboy State where they're adjusting that to be able to allow for those pronghorns specifically. That, that seems to be their method of being able to, to navigate that is if you can adjust that and allow for that to happen, then, of course, they're able to transition that and be able to navigate that uh, in a way that doesn't pose a risk to them. And it allows for their movement to continue so that they're not hanging along the sideway side or the, the shoulder of the road. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, what a great deal. And like the, the migrational studies that have come out that show a lot of those deer, like you talked earlier about following the green wave of food as it moves through country from the low country to the high country. Um, but they're finding a lot of these deer that travel from their summer range are going 50, 100 miles and even further to some of these places, right? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, the uh, the study that uh, was commissioned by the BLM in 2012 uh, that Hall Sawyer was in charge of, um, it was absolutely a phenomenal study, and it really started to bring to light how important it is that uh, we look at that and we learn from that and we put the right tools in the toolbox to understand it better. But those deer were moving almost 160 miles twice a year. And that, you know, that's a, you, you think about the landscape that that critter crosses, uh, not just, uh, you know, public land, uh, BLM or forest service land, but then also private land. And, you know, it, there's, there's an array of obstacles from fencing to roads uh, to just the the different terrains that they cover, and you start looking at some of where those bottlenecks are. That that particular migration corridor really opened, I think, a lot of folks' eyes. I think a lot of folks uh, were aware that you know deer clearly move, but I don't think to the depth or the intimacy of how that movement was and how routine that movement was, not just by a few, but by many. Uh, it became really what you know I, I think is a national treasure. 
Yeah, um, like uh, same trails, same passes, uh, same corridors moving through, right? Is is that what you're talking about? Exactly. I mean, and, you know, in this one in particular, there was a about a 400-meter bottleneck uh, that they crossed, you know, 5,000 deer moved through every year. And as luck would have it, that uh, that property was up for sale. It was, it was a large chunk of property, but it was up for sale for – little over two million dollars and it was uh, it was being offered to be subdivided up into ranchettes or, or smaller lots and that type of development you know the risk of what that could have done to that entire corridor we got very lucky i mean we're on this timeline at a very unique time i believe i mean we all only have so many granules of sand in our hourglass but this timeline that we're on right now that decision to be able to purchase that land and to be able to raise the type of dollars and supporters and funders that would make that happen and then be able to turn that into a permanent conservation easement so that corridor can continue to exist, that's huge. That's what what conservation is about. It's about being able to make that type of impact that's beyond your living years. As a steward of the resource on this time, on our timeline, to know that we did right, that we – we worked with what we had and we tried to leave it better than what it was given to us or what its current state was. And I, I think that's what motivates us all that love wildlife is how do we continue to make this be something that would flourish and be sustainable for, for not only our children, but our children's children and then thereafter. So. Absolutely. Well, and how critical for that herd. And it's, it's just amazing. It's like the more knowledge that we have at our fingertips of what these deer are doing or what the wildlife is doing, the better we can protect it. And like you say, that little chunk of land that that was a bottleneck for all those deer to go through was so important. And I know, like even in my home valley, like I live in uh, Madison Valley in Ennis, Montana, and and you know there's there's some foundations that have done some great work here for like the the elk habitat, and they've they've put um, you know they've made designated uh, winter range spots that are in conservation easement and protected and then protect them with dates at keeping people out of there during you know while the elk are wintering in there while the elk are you know even in early state of calving and things of that nature um, so that knowledge is just key of, of figuring out that information like that the study that you mentioned um, and then from there we can make a plan to protect it that's right. That's right. I, I again, I think uh, I think that's the duty that we all are charged with. Uh, I, you know, whether we're just a, a sportsman or we work for an agency or we work for a conservation group, I, I think that's the duty and do it with due diligence that we do our best to to get and gather the best information we can to be able to allow us to be able to let the best decision be made because we've been able to put the right tool in the toolbox. So Yeah, absolutely. How are the um, deer numbers doing after the that was it the bad winter seventeen eighteen was our last bad one we had? Yeah, that that was a tough one, man. You talk again about uh, deer just seem to take it on the chin. It's one thing after another. I I mean that was a bad winter. We uh, were involved in a couple of different studies that we've been allocating dollars to that uh, have allowed us to put some satellite collars on not only some does, but their fawns, as well as some elk cows and their calves. And, uh, you know, the elk, they, they thrive. They, they Their numbers are robust, but the deer, they just don't do well. And it's the, the little influences that others are able to sustain that the deer just don't seem to be able to adapt to. And that winter was a very tough winter, but, uh, you know, nature has a way of 
doing its thing and you know you you, you can only you, you always want to try to find that it, you've, everybody's heard the you know is the glass half full or is it half empty you know well, this is a glass that uh, has unlimited amount of refills in it when it comes to the, the work of nature. and I just think that you have those setbacks, that you feel like things are going good, you have that momentum, and then you have something like that that's beyond anybody's control. And then what do you do? You, you just got to continue to hope that you know maybe that had a bigger part of the process that uh, as humans maybe we don't understand. But maybe the deer that were able to come from that and come out of that were able to be more hardy and they were able to adjust and and you you just you continue to hope that it's making a, a difference in all the other things that you can do knowing that that was something that was out of your control yeah absolutely yeah nothing you can do i mean maybe uh you know supplemental feeding at the time or there's you know little things like that that you can do but that's that's nature's course also that uh you know every once in a while you're going to have a bad winter and i i have seen wyoming have them and recover from them i remember the one uh 2007 2008 i think was a pretty bad one and boy i, I sure watched the deer numbers recover from that one quick too you know so no there's no doubt in my mind that they'll bounce back but you're right they don't mule deer don't winter as good as an elk and i i think there's a lot of factors that go into that like i think you know one factor is is that the the muleys rut so hard and they rut during november and run a lot of their fat off and then have to make it through winter with less fat reserves where the elk rut in september and they have a chance to kind of recover and put some weight back on the winter and it seems like those elk are willing to to almost winter lower um and, and the mule deer tend to stay a little bit higher on those slopes or try to winter a little bit higher uh, i'm sure there's a bunch of different factors but you're right the the mule deer they they take those winters a lot tougher than the elk do and a standard winter you know they do fine it's just those those winters that the you know where it gets well below zero for for multiple days and then you know the deep snow where they can't get through the crust of the snow to feed and a lot of places you know, they do okay if you've got some, some wind-blown slopes or, you know, where the wind will blow some of those slopes clean and then those animals can feed on them. But in some of those places, and as much snow as you guys got, it just stacked up where they just couldn't get to the feed. Yeah, some of those areas were, you know, 300% above its average snowpack. I mean, you're just... Wow. I mean, you're you're up against a, a wall when you're dealing in situations like that. And, I, you know, I think the other part you mentioned in comparison to, you know, like an elk, the, the dietary needs are, are so different. And, you know, that's been an important part of a, a different project that we've been involved with in comparing and looking at both of those critters on the landscape and how those nutritional dynamics, specifically focusing in on connecting the fat gain with habitat selection, and how they differ between the two, and is that creating potentially a competition that's having an adverse effect on our mule deer populations where the elk populations are are on an upward trend and, and on a strong upward trend. And I, I think when we can start being able to flesh out uh, some of those differences, then that allows us to be able to target specifically habitat treatments or efforts that can be of more benefit to deer than just a broad project that may be a, a good benefit to deer, but a great benefit to elk. And uh, I think that, you know, those are, those are, again, those are the type of things that we're on a unique timeline right now that science and the advancement of technology and the information and the experience that we have learned after all of these years that 
we're still learning more. And, and that's exciting. That's an exciting time to be around to know that there's still work to be done and we can still do it and we can do it and we are doing it. So, I mean, um, yeah, it's exciting stuff, Brian. I'm glad you, man, it's contagious to talk to you because I can hear it in your voice. You get the same passion that fuels us every day. Yeah, that, um, well, that really strikes home what you just talked about because that's exactly the outside the box thinking that, so what you mentioned is, is the elk doing so well and the mule deer numbers going down and the, um, yeah, trying to figure out their food sources and, and if they're competing for those food sources. And, and my information is all anecdotal, but I know usually where I find elk uh, that are really doing good in healthy populations that the mule deer numbers aren't as high in those areas. Now, they seem to compete for the same food source. Now, if you do find areas like they have in Wyoming, like your, you know, your unit G or your unit H, those big mountain units, there's a lot of grass tops up to those mountains and grass tops with not much water. And those, those elk can't seem to live up on those grass tops because there's not enough water for them. So they live down in the big drainages and in the valleys, you know, down below. And then the, those bucks are able to migrate up there and they're able to have that food source all of themselves on all those peaks. And it seems like, you know, in, in that instance, like both can, can, can flourish, uh, can flourish and, and thrive, flourish and thrive. Sorry, I got that wrong, but they can both do well because they're not competing on the same food source. So is, is that what you're talking about in those studies, Josh, what you guys are looking at? No, not not really. I mean, yeah, I totally get that, and I, I would agree with you, you know, but that's such a temporary time. I mean, it's a very short window that the those deer are able to be in that area, obviously, you know, with the an impact of winter. Th those deer are not there year-round, and they continue to, to move out to, to seek out their winter range. But, no, specifically what I was referencing was – and this was a project that we've been intimately engaged with. It's a Ph.D. project that we had commissioned with the University of Wyoming through the co-op unit. And it's a it's a pretty it's a it's an exhaustive project, but it had a very, very what we determined to be six very strong project objectives. So the project is called DEER, and that's an acronym that stands for Deer Elk Ecology Research. And the reason that we came to the table with this project and presented this project to the, the co-op unit was we have a herd unit that is in close proximity to where we're headquartered, in, and that was not the basis for the project, but it, just as as a notion of where you can picture this project, I guess, on the landscape is Rock Springs, Wyoming, which is about 12 miles to the east of us. There's an area south of Rock Springs that is known as the Greater Little Mountain Ecosystem, and within that area is there are three prized elk areas for sportsmen. They're limited quota areas, if you will, trophy areas. And then there is also a very important and very valuable deer limited quota area known as 102 that in the past has produced some incredible deer. But what we have seen in that area is that the deer numbers have declined significantly. And again, the elk numbers have rised and are robust as can be. But what made this area the perfect laboratory for this study was not that it was held in such high public regard with sportsmen being a, a limited quota area for both species, but that this area had very little gas and oil development. And, and that was important for us because 
And, and, you know, at this time, and this was 2015 when this project got its feet on the ground, but it was a project that we started working on to be able, I mean, there was a, a year of legwork to to be able to determine what would these objectives be, what would this study look like, what would the costs associated be to do this and do it right. So we started this very early on, within two years of us even being an organization of existence. And, you know, it was important for us that if we could find that laboratory that had all the right components and didn't have the oil and gas component within it as far as the development on the landscape, then it would remove that as a culprit that many were at the time indicating that's why our deer numbers were declining was because we had such a robust oil and gas development over a decade in a you know, that that boom of that cycle. And so this area didn't have that, which really played well into trying to, to find some real answers of what was going on within that landscape. And so, again, the, the Deer Elk Ecology Research Project, it was, in a nutshell, it was driven to, to be able to try to answer why our deer numbers are declining and our elk numbers are increasing. And, and it was you know, it was it was pretty pretty important for us to be able to outline what would those objectives be if if money wasn't an issue and this could be the most encompassing research project that had ever been done of its sort, what would we need to look at? And so what we identified was obviously productivity. That that was huge. Uh, the pregnancy and fetal rates, fawn survival, cause specific mortality. I mean, that, that was one that we identified right out of the gate, like this has got to be high. Secondly, nutritional dynamics. Uh, Wyoming had been 26 years in, in a pretty serious drought, and how can we focus on connecting that fat gain with habitat selection and then look at where the interaction and the competition may be on the effects of fat gain because of the use of the landscape more predominantly by elk? Seasonal movement, obviously, that, that was a, an important component within this as well. And it's a little tricky since it's almost completely unknown at this point when we started this where these deer move because this area, we are bordering Utah and Colorado to the south of us. And you have the idea that that's where they're going. But to, to be able, you know, that was the big part of this is let, let's not have any more ideas. Let's take the guesswork out of this and start to let science elevate because with sound science, we could potentially maybe provoke change or be able to put that again, that, that right tool in the toolbox to allow for that change to, to come to reality. Beyond that, seasonal diet. That, that's really where we could get to the gist of looking at the competition between both gathering of both deer and elk feces to learn their diet, learn the possible overlap between the two species and how they're utilizing that landscape. Um, and, and, you know, I think that just spun off from there the other objective we wanted to be able to identify, and that was the resource or habitat selection, the different habitat types within that region, what the deer and the elk select, and if elk may affect the selection by deer. And, you know, the only way we were going to be able to identify that was to be able to allow the technology and the advancements of technology to, to be able to get a firsthand account of what these species were doing and, and that technology advancement of course, is with those satellite GPS collars that were able to be fixated to these critters. Uh, and, and then most importantly, I, I think because it, it was a concern of some of the, the sportsmen and some of our members that we were able to reach out and try to solicit uh, their support and their feedback and some of their ideas was 
male mule deer recruitment. Uh, buck ratios don't track well within this herd uh, with either harvest rates or fawn production, and they don't grow to the expected levels of, of what people want to see on the landscape as a consumptive user of the resource. So yearling bucks are underrepresented in this population during postseason population surveys and are either experiencing disproportionate natural mortality or they may be leaving this herd unit altogether. And so this research should help determine and flesh out some of those factors that are influencing the buck numbers within this herd. It, I know it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot of nerdy science stuff probably, but it's a, you know, it, it's really the right opportunity to just see if we can, again, continue to, to gather that information that we don't have and, and what can that do and, Hopefully, you know, the idea behind this was our strategy, Strategy, I guess, would be to, to be able to bridge those gaps be, between not only animal behavior, movement, ecology, nutritional ecology, but uh, also the life history strategies of looking at an integrative approach to, to understanding these population dynamics and interactions between these, you know, very important species on the landscape, so... Man, that's uh, that's all super interesting stuff. And you're right to to invoke change. That's what we need to do is need to understand what's going on and what's affecting them. Um, what an amazing study, and and what a great way to go about it is to to figure out what's going on and then come up with the solutions from there. Yeah, it sounds good on paper, but it's. <laughs> it, it was... <laughs> It was a very costly commitment, you know. We we weren't even an organization two years old, and this this crazy idea that you know outside the box that nobody was going to put money forth on this. I mean, money. You may recall there there was it wasn't that long ago. I don't know how familiar you are with Wyoming, but uh, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department uh, was cutting its budget, was uh, cutting its staff. I mean, economically. It was the wrong time to be able to try to launch a program or a project like this, let alone a project uh, that involves such uh, high-dollar uh, investments from just the way that this monitoring would be done from adult capture with you know the utilization of helicopters and then all of the equipment and then to be able to you know have a PhD candidate that could could take on this project and the grad students that could support it with the the summer work and the diet composition. I mean, it was huge. And so we had just, you know, again, it was outside the box, but we thought, you know what, this is such an important area and this is such an important study that can also be applied to other landscapes, not just, it's not going to solve just this problem here or just be applicable here. It, it could be utilized as information that would have gain in very, similar ecosystems and habitats that spread all over the West, not just in Wyoming. And when the the proposal came back from the University of Wyoming and the co-op unit from Dr. Monteith, uh, the the dollar tag was a little staggering and we knew it was going to be high and, and it didn't, it didn't by any means scare us or make us want to think of, you know, well, well, let's just kick the can down the road and maybe someday we'll grow to be able to do that. But the proposal came back. It was $1,313,745. And, of course, they, you know, that, that's over a five-year period of time, four years of field study, and then a data analysis and white paper, white paper publication uh, to come out of this. And 
So we just started looking at, okay, well, let's divide that by five. Let's, uh, okay, you know, maybe more of the costs are going to be in the first four years than the last year. Okay, so maybe we need to divide it by four. And how are we going to generate that revenue? And, you know, like any organization, the only way you're going to grow is if you can bring new folks to the fold that would be willing to support these ideas and support these type of efforts. And, and we believed wholeheartedly that, uh, you know, again, we're on the right time of the timeline. We have... We have great social media presence. We have very cost-effective way of being able to reach people in today's world. And so we just felt like at the end of the day, if we can get this information out, maybe not make it sound as geeky as I just made it sound, but we could get this out and maybe make it so that folks could resonate that, yeah, this is important. That's where you build value. And if you could build value, then people would support it. And, so we have uh, we have come a long way. We we still have uh, two hundred and seventy thousand eight hundred and forty dollars left to to pay on this. But uh, you know it's been a success, and I, I'm confident that we'll you know we're not going to lose momentum now. The light is at the end of the tunnel, but it, it's a uh, the project has taken on a couple of different folds within it, and it and it is because of the success of getting the project launched that it allowed for a couple of addendums to be added from the project or to the project, rather, and that was a, a coyote addendum. Uh, the, the predation impact within this, this study was very significant, a lot more than maybe some had thought. And so with that, there was an addendum that was added by the Wyoming Game and Fish Department that allocated $100,000 to specifically target and try to understand the impact of predation on these deer in this area. And those, it wasn't just throwing a, a blank check at, at let's, go kill coyotes it, it was specifically use some science that could be beneficial that would tie into this project when more fawns you know you have the collars on them you know when they're dying you know when that mortality is being recorded so is there a potential to be able to specifically target some of our predation control efforts during that very critical partition period of time that are showing these are when we're losing most of our fawns and we're losing the, a lot of them to predation not just from coyotes but also mountain lions. And so that was able to offer another opportunity that added another addendum. And that was, let's understand the movement of our predators. And so it's the only study that I'm aware of, but we had 26 coyotes online at one time with a collar, nine mountain lions. And I think being able to, you know, it's easy to just want to say, well, we just need to, we just need to kill more predators and we'll take care of our deer. And if that was the case, we wouldn't have any predators. You know, you don't need a license. They've been around for a long time, uh, and, and people have been harvesting predators for a long time. Um, but if we can understand them better and we can be more efficient in our efforts to control that during times when maybe our deer populations are more vulnerable, particularly partrition time period when fawns are hitting the ground, then maybe we can have an impact that would be favorable and would have an impact to our deer in a favorable way. And so, you know, it, it, it's really been a great study and, you know, hindsight being what it is, I can't tell you how many hours of sleep we've lost thinking about this and probably years off our life and just the stress of we can do this. Of course we can do this. You know, we, we put up a good front. We, we showcased because you need to build momentum by being positive and confident, but boy, behind the scenes, 
we're shaking in our boots, man. I'll be real. <laughs> well, um, you guys are playing the long game too. You you guys are are playing the game down the road. You you keep mentioning the, the you know the the time frame that we're in right now for mule deer's in the in the species, and and you guys are planning ahead, and the the payoff comes down the road. And um, you know, I think that's the way it is with a lot of things. Is um, you know, being able to to sell yourself. In your your organization, but then also having confidence in you and your members that that you will get it done and you will find a way and get the information from this and then make changes from it. It's just uh, so important the work you guys are doing. I I just really like the like you say the 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 creative thinking of of what's gonna you know help push this in a better direction and get our mule deer numbers to to a better place. Uh, it's just great. So how many um, chapters do you guys have of uh, Muley Fanatics? So we have 14 chapters right now, and and we just brought on our 15th chapter. Although their their activity really won't begin until the year 2020, which is it's really, <laughs> and, and it kind of fits with outside the box. This is uh, we we have a we have nine chapters in Wyoming, two in Colorado, two in Utah, and one in Idaho. And now our 15th chapter is uh and it's 100% driven by one of our supporters but he he lives in Virginia in uh, Winchester Virginia and he's he reached out to us and when he first made the the pitch to us that he wanted to get this chapter going you know what the three of us at work at the office were you know it was on a conference call and we were kind of googly eyed looking at each other like there's no mule deer in Virginia. I mean, is, is there and we're we're missing this. We we didn't know about this. <laughs> and the, the guy was just passionate, and when his story became clear of why he wanted to do it, uh, that, then we be, it became a little more palatable for us. But our biggest thing initially was our model is so different. Our, our chapters are designed, and the way we designed our organization is that our chapters retain 70% of the revenue that they generate from their annual fundraising event, or banquet as many call them, um, they retain that in a local bank in their local community, and then those dollars are allocated locally by an all-volunteer project allocation committee from within that community. We, we don't sit on that community. Um, the idea behind the whole premise of this in our organization was that it would allow for local folks to make a local difference in a local area where they can truly measure the fruit of their own labor. We had been uh, – involved with another organization for five years prior to starting our own. And uh, we had generated a ton of money, $581,000, and could only account for 12.2% of it to even come back into Wyoming. And it and it just became an opportunity for us, not, not that the other organization didn't have merit and wasn't maybe doing good things, but it just seemed like there was maybe a different way to do business or a different model that would allow – that when these folks are, are going to an event and supporting that organization and having a good time and potentially winning a nice prize and having a nice meal, learning about things that are going on locally, that they could be part of the solution and make a difference locally and that their money, the bulk of their money could stay right there. And um, that that's the premise of our model. And so when someone in Virginia wants to start a chapter back there and can rally what they believe to be support for this idea. It, you know, it was a head scratcher. How, how is that going to work in Virginia? And this particular guy, his name is Dave Cavanaugh. He, he actually, he owns property in Wyoming. He doesn't spend a lot of time in Wyoming yet because of his career, 
But he said, I'm a passionate mule deer guy. And when I go to Wyoming, I want to know that I'm contributing to something that I come out there every year to take of the resource, that I'm contributing in a way that gives back to it. And he said, I, I, you know, birds of a feather flock together. He says, I have friends back here that do the same thing. And I think that I can drum up support from folks back here in the east that would come to an event that love mule deer. They know where mule deer are. And if you're willing to send us proposals and project proposals that we can review that have to do with research and habitat treatments and things that our committee back here, whether we live in the cowboy state or not, we don't mind allocating dollars from here that we can generate that will go to the thing that we love to do when we come out there. And I guess once I could wrap my head around that passion that he had, I just thought, let's do this. How do you tell someone no that wants to do good for mule deer? Yeah, uh, you can't. You jump on board. Uh, what a great idea. What a great guy, too, wanting to give back. Like like you say, that – that is the essence of you know an outdoorsman. You know is is um, the things that we enjoy. It's trying to protect them for future generations to enjoy as well. Um, what a great thing he's doing, and what a great thing you guys are doing. Um, how many members do you guys have? We're just shy of eight thousand right now, Brian. Yep. And so then you can join and be a member um, whether you live in Wyoming or whether you don't. Right. We have we have members all over. Uh, in fact, we've talked at a couple of different times about buying one of those maps of the, the United States and, you know, get it getting the little colored pinheads. And, you know, when we get a new member in New York or in Florida or South Carolina, you know, marking it on a map. But there, there's there's been such a, a broad support, uh, you know, and some of that is. Uh, the way we've been paying for that deer project is that we've been doing a series of raffles called the Buck Fever Raffle, where the proceeds of those raffles go to, to cover our efforts within that big PhD project that we're doing. And so when you have a raffle opportunity like that and it gets broadcasted with no limitation to all 50 states that, uh, you know, you, you tend to get that guy that, you know, he becomes a little more curious than – I have this opportunity to, to win this great prize, but I'm also supporting an organization. And so we've seen some membership growth just come from that affiliation directly to that project. Our current raffle, which is it's by far our best one, um, we, we're raffling off a 2019 Toyota Tacoma as the grand prize. And it's got about $30,000 worth of accessories on it. That is, I mean, it's, it's the, when we approached, uh, there's a, a car dealership within Wyoming called Fremont Motors that has very broad outreach as they have multiple dealerships all over the state. I believe they have a dozen of them. And uh, so they have a large audience. And when we reached out to them to partner on this raffle idea, uh, we on the Tacoma specifically, we just basically said, we want this truck to be, if the guy who bought the Tacoma or the gal uh, if money wasn't an option and they wanted to throw every useful application for their needs of this truck, whether it's the rooftop tent or the bumpers or the refrigerator, ARB, freezer in the back, uh, the, the whole gamut. We, we wanted it to be, this is what I would do if I could buy it and my wife would let me do it. And, <laughs> and so it, uh, that, that's our grand prize. Our, our second place prize is a 17-foot Jayco camp trailer that the local RV de dealer donated to us. 
And then our third prize is a 2019 Wyoming Game and Fish Commissioner license that allows the recipient of that or the winner of that third prize to hunt deer, elk, or antelope anywhere in the cowboy state. They just pick their species and then their herd unit. Um, so that 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 that's a nice third prize. I mean, that's a well. You don't have to be a resident to win. You don't have to be a member to win. Anybody can buy a raffle ticket for that. But I think when folks, when we're able to tie what the raffle is for, I think that's how we've been able to grow some of our numbers is that folks understand that they want to be part of the solution too. They, their small contribution matched with other small contributions by others, it allows for big things to happen. And it's really that it's that growing waterfall approach of, you know, waterfall is one drop, but boy, by the end of Niagara Falls, it's it's powerful, and and that's kind of the the basis to this. Yeah, um, what a raffle you guys have going on, and that's going on currently, you say? It is, yeah. So back to the license plate thing. Last year, we learned how important the voice in Wyoming was of not just sportsmen, but uh, those other two organizations I mentioned, the Stock Growers Association and the Petroleum Association of Wyoming that represents the energy industry within the state. And, um, you know, it became clear to us that uh, the the powerful voice is not the guys that we're talking to all the time at our events, the, the hunters, the, the guys that, you know, are our brothers that share the same love and passion that we do, but that there is a larger voice out there that isn't participating in those activities, but yet they still love wildlife. They still love our wild places and our wild things, whether they're campers or photographers or mountain bikers or kayakers. I mean, you when you go and you experience any of those outdoor recreation activities, they're always enhanced when you have that experience of seeing wildlife in its natural setting. And so we, we just thought, you know, our banquets are always going to connect and bring folks within our chapter efforts that are hunters. I mean, that's what they do. You, you go to those banquets and you're going to win and, you know, some opportunities to have some, some nice firearms. But, you know, the artwork is always wildlife related. You've been to them. I've been to them. We, we know what that's going to attract. But how can we organize an event that would attract folks that aren't within that fold but still love wildlife? And so last year, again, I, I sound like I'm beating a dead horse, but we – we thought outside the box again, and we thought, you know, what what are the things that people love that maybe it isn't related to hunting? Everybody loves to eat. Everybody loves good music, and everybody loves an adult frothy cold beverage on a hot summer day, right? That's right. And so we 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 thought, you know, we don't have a music festival in our town, and we have we have an awesome venue. The, the bluegrass mountain music has, has kind of been very trendy in the last decade and has grown with some tremendous popularity. And I thought, man, we have an island right in the middle of our community named Expedition Island that John Wesley Powell just a few weeks ago marked his 150th anniversary of when he began his navigational trek of the Colorado River system. And it started right here. We have these huge mature trees that provide this beautiful canopy of shade on this huge grass courtyard. And we just thought, man, what if we could what if we could put a stage at the end of that island temporarily, bring in some great musical acts, would attract people, but then use the opportunity and the platform to explain and let people know what we do, what we care about, and that you don't have to be a hunter. This license plate has nothing to do with hunting. And so yeah, that's we, we did it last year and it flopped. 
<laughs> I mean, it, it lost money, man. It was a it was a big drain to us, and uh, but it was the idea had merit, and so this year our second annual music festival is Friday, July nineteenth and twentieth. And we'll be drawing for the the truck, the camper, and that commissioner's license on Saturday night after our last act. And I I say it flopped. It flopped on paper. But the momentum and the ideas and the ability, your best teacher is always your own mistakes, to be able to go back to the drawing board, look at what worked, what didn't work. Uh, You know, we competed last year with an event that has a, a long history and, you know, when you start planning these events, you're, you're months in advance, six, eight months in advance. And we didn't realize until three or four months into this the, the conflict with the calendar of another event that drew a lot of people. But it wasn't about just drawing local people. It was how can we make this event draw people from not just Wyoming but across the region? And, you know, one of the one of those things that was identified last year that wasn't an opportunity for us was – to allow for camping, to allow people that want to come here to be able to have the opportunity to either tent or trailer camp. And so we had to go to the city council and ask for a temporary use permit. And that was met with a little resistance initially, but when it was all said and done, it passed the council and was able to get the nod to go for it. And so, uh, you know, I, I say it flop, but I, I say that tongue in cheek because really it's built with great momentum in this year's event. Already, it's 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 a success. We're very excited about it. We know it's going to be a phenomenal event. The music acts are great. The the amount of food trucks that we were able to bring in from its initial year to this year have more than doubled. Uh, I think the the craft brews that are available and the various craft brewers that uh, not are only in Wyoming but across the region and they're uh, they're hearing about this festival. And you know, last year we were begging the musicians to come. This year, we didn't have to call a one. We had more to consider than we could have ever imagined. And it was just, okay, we need to pick five for Friday and five for Saturday. So it's amazing that just a little bit of, you know, gut check and, you know, maybe taking it on the chin the first year, how it can completely turn around to just be something so looked forward to that, uh, going to be a complete success this year so yeah i I love that too josh i think that's great i think uh well and two you're just being so honest too and and so authentic and putting it together and you're right that's how you get good at anything in life is just by you know looking at it and then improving from it it sounds like you guys have an awesome venue put together this year um july 19th and july 20th you say huh yep And, and it will be exciting i mean i'm telling you to all, all three prizes are nice, but this Toyota Tacoma we have it's it's got 33 miles on it. It's parked right out in front of our office, and, and anybody can win it because anybody can buy a ticket to participate in the raffle on our website. So there's no guarantee that the winner of any of these prizes will be in attendance. But uh, even if they're not, to be able to call, I mean, last year we our big prize was a, a stealth craft drift boat, and the winner was actually he bought a ticket online. He lived in Michigan, but we, we called him on the phone and, you know, we held the phone up to the mic and all those that were at the festival got to hear it. And, you know, it, yeah, it's just cool. We can call someone. Of course, he was two hour time difference from us. So it was about midnight when he called. You could tell he was a little groggy. But at the same time, I think he recognized the 307 area code that these guys wouldn't be calling me unless they had good news, you know, <laughs> and, and 
So I, I think on this truck to be able to call the winner, if, if, if it's not a winner that's present, it's, it's going to still be that intoxicating just in the buzz of excitement. So I'd say, yeah, what a truck you guys have put together. What a bunch of prizes and what a great job engaging the community, you know, with your, with your members to the, to the companies and, and, um, just to get everybody together for, for, you know, a, a common good for, for mule deer and habitat and, and, um, it's just so important the work you guys are doing. So yeah, I can't thank you enough, Josh. Um, you did a great job of explaining everything you guys got going on. So it sounds like um, we can send people to the website, and you guys are at uh, muleyfanatic.org. That's correct, Brian. Yeah, muleyfanatic.org, and uh, you know, there's a lot of information about a lot of the things we talked about on there. Uh, the the deer project, uh, they you know the the university has done a phenomenal job in putting out uh, seasonal updates on that project. They're in the midst uh, this week. They, the first fawn hit the ground last Tuesday. They've been out there capturing fawns. It's You know, the fawn captures are completely different than the, the doe and the elk cow captures in, in March. When those deer are captured in March, those doe deer are given a vaginal implant transmitter that, you know, when it comes out of the birth canal, these two butterfly wings open up and send a signal that, you know, something's come through the canal, and and that's all you have to go by. And you can locate that vit, but then it, it really becomes an adult Easter egg hunt on the landscape, knowing that that fawn is hiding somewhere underneath the sagebrush in close proximity, and it isn't going to move. And so they're they're doing that as we speak, and it's a, it's pretty exciting times. There's a lot of great information on that. And yeah, I, I thank you for the plug to to drive people to the website because. That's really where you can get the, a good understanding. You know, I just touched the surface of all the amount of information that's available, but it's a, uh, it's good stuff, man. It's a, uh, it's, it's something we hold very dear, and uh, it's a responsibility that all of us have, and we're just glad to be in a position to, to do our part to, to bring it to fruition. Yeah, I'm inspired as well. Yep, I'm gonna go check out the website and the work you guys are doing. So yeah, thanks so much for taking the time, Josh, and and thanks again for for all your effort for Mule Deer. And equally to you, Brian, thanks for what you do. You allow this message to be heard, and I can't thank you enough. I my vocabulary lacks my gratitude to express that. So thanks for that, man. Yep, mine too. Um, yep, good luck, and uh, we'll check back in with you. You know, after your guys' show, as we get into to mule deer hunting season and see what you guys are up to this is going to be a good year absolutely oh i can't wait yeah it's going to be fun have you drawn any good tags yet no it hasn't been announced yet so uh, yeah fingers crossed but boy the landscape is just i mean spring has sprung the the forbs and forage on the landscape is just it's going to be a phenomenal year and if if you're chasing bone, this this will be a good year. Oh, isn't that the truth? Yeah, I forgot Wyoming results aren't out yet. Uh, but yeah, the the Wyoming should be good, and some of these drought states ought to be really good. They just got so much moisture this year from Nevada and Utah and Arizona and New Mexico. Um, and then, like you say, I always like these um, snowpacks that hold on and hold on late. And good snowpacks seems to make for great feed and and great antler growth. So yeah, it's gonna be fun. Yes, it is. All right. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it, man. Yep. Thank you. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. All right. Bye. All right, guys. That's a wrap. 
Um, so much great information in there about mule deer, the species, and and uh, conservation, and how we can do our part. Um, I just love hunting mule deer so much, and I get worried. They are such a sensitive species, and I just want to make sure I'm doing my part to protect them for future generations and uh, help spreading the word. So thanks a bunch for Josh and all he does, and, and also uh, Muley Fanatic. Um, also want to thank our sponsors for today's show, Sportsman's Warehouse. Um, they just run such a great store for sportsmen. Um, they have everything in there, all the top brands. You can go in, touch it, feel it, try it on, uh, look through it as far as optics, compare and contrast. Uh, they have a knowledgeable staff, just a great store with everything you need in there. So, um, yeah, any of your hunting gear or if you're headed on a hunt and need something this year, make sure to check out Sportsman's Warehouse. I uh, also want to thank IOTA. They just make the, the best scope rings and mounts in the business. Um, you know, they have the level on the side of their rings, which I always think is a is a great feature. And then also they're building high-end rifle uh, stocks. So make sure to check those out as well. And thanks to IOTA for sponsoring the podcast. And with that, oh, I just got to get my stuff packed up here. A couple days left. I got to go uh, work tomorrow on some concrete counters, get some things checked off my list here. And then, um, yeah, going to take off and go do a little bow hunting for a handful of days. It's going to be hot. Been doing my heat training, making sure my bow is shooting, got all my stuff packed up. Um, just so ready to cut these legs loose and, and um, go do some bow hunting, go walk around the, with my bow in the field and um, Hawaii hanging out. They're, um, they're such great guys and such buddies, uh, that I've made over there, just, um, super friends. And so like, I can't wait to go hang out with them. It'll be a bunch of laughs. I uh, will try to get a podcast or two recorded. Um, I know there's going to be some, some animals hit the deck. So we'll be hunting mouflon and axis deer. And, um, those guys are such great bow hunters that, uh, yeah, I know, I know somebody's gonna, gonna harvest something. Um, the meat is so good. So yeah, I just can't wait. It's just going to be a, a fun vacation and a fun start to my hunting season. Um, so get these podcasts all loaded up, get my work done and, uh, I'll be loading up in no time. So, um, I do, I've got to shoot angles one last time here. I got to get out and shoot angles today. Um, so I'll do that, get my run in. Um, definitely going to do some sauna work, just trying to get used to the heat. It's going to be so hot over there late July, August in Hawaii, but, um, do my heat training and, um, yeah, before I know it, I'll be loading up. So, um, I know you guys got some fun hunts you're looking forward to keep working hard towards your goals. Um, I'm going to get another couple podcasts loaded up to you. So we'll have another one out this week. Um, that's with my buddy Clint Casper. And then, um, oh, I've got a great one coming up after that too. Um, one all about e-scouting and, and there's, there's good information about mule deer e-scouting, great information about elk e-scouting. I have Mark, um, uh, live say on live say, um, guy is just a wealth of knowledge on on e-scouting and so we really break it down like how to learn a unit from scratch it's a great podcast so i'll get those two edited up and ready to release to you guys and uh yeah with that um have a good rest of the week keep working hard towards your goals